This is Jared Fishman, and you're listening to the 20-Sided Gamified Podcast. The past 20 years, I've blended games and education together in the classroom. I'm a history teacher, a game-based learning specialist, and I serve on the board of HMGS NextGen Inc. and the North American Simulations and Games Association. I'm looking to broaden my own knowledge of game-based learning by talking to the people that do it best. Pull up a chair, get your dice ready, and enjoy the ride. All right, everybody. Hello, Jared here. Um, I'm in a wonderful place right now if uh, you care about me at all, which I think from the feedback, I guess you sort of do. So um, uh, it's summer break, meaning my teaching schedule is done, meaning I'm going to be doing a lot of podcasts and a lot of gaming uh, this summer. Also, if you care, um, and I know this is a topic that's come up a few times, um, so the squirrels continue to terrorize me. Um, We're in a, a place of what I like to call detente, which means... They just do whatever they want. And they're at the point where when I go outside, uh, they'll literally crawl up into the feeders and literally stare at me while they eat. So that's kind of where we're at. I'm liking, I'm calling it detente ultimately to make myself feel better. So again, because uh, I know that you're all so very concerned about the backyard and such. Um, but all that aside, um, today's going to be an exciting podcast. I know this, I say that often, but that's mostly because we always have really cool people on. Um so if you've ever heard of Westchester Community College, it's a school that uh, I hold pretty dear to me. Um, I went there 20 years ago um, out of high school, and that was really like my first foray into the world of academia. Um, a very good friend of mine, uh, Scott Petorty, who I will get on this show eventually, um, you know, he uh, he's playing hard to get. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Um, he uh, has been working at WCC for a long time, and he's in our little game club. We, you know, play all sorts of tabletop games, role playing games, and stuff like that. He works in the testing center, so he kind of, um, essentially, is really like almost the first sort of steps that students take when it comes to going to, you know, uh, Westchester Community College. And much like a lot of our guests, um, he came up to me and says, "I know this person." And that is always a good sign for someone who who hosts a podcast because I have Stephen O'Rourke here. He's a PhD in psychology. Um, he's going to talk a little bit about his sort of origin story to kind of get the ball rolling. But um, he's doing a lot of really, really cool things with games, not just um, you know within his sort of own pedagogy at WCC, but even outside of the institution as well. So, uh, Steve, I know you're here. You've been listening Hello, to Ramble. You? <laughs> I'm doing really well, man. I'm um, I'm really excited to have you here. And like I said, uh, Scott is like one of my closest friends, not just a gaming friend, but really like really like a wonderful guy. And all he had was uh, not just positive things to say, but like very interesting things to say. So I'm excited to have you here. That's good to hear. I'll tell tell Scott the checks in the mail. I appreciate the, the, the <laughs> right. positive feedback. No, I'm sure, very, sure. I'm also very pleased to hear that you've reached detente uh, with this <laughs> historical approach to gaming. Yes. I'm glad that you've rejected mutually assured destruction. <laughs> yes, with the background, we'll uh, background they're very uh, cute. Wildlife. Yes, they're very cute. I can't help it. I mean, they shouldn't be on the bird feeders. They should not be there, <laughs> but. When you look at their little rodent faces, it's like, I can't, I, I just can't, I can't launch the missile, so to speak. You know what I, I mean? Understand. I just get mad yours, at them. That's it. Yours is a little bit more love-hate, uh, whereas my <laughs> father-in-law's relationship with the squirrels and the, and the backyard bird feeder is more purely hate-hate. Uh, so I get it. <laughs> that's funny. Um, 
that would actually be a really funny podcast to do <laughs> talking about backyard <laughs> politics, you know, and maybe uh maybe in comparison with the world that we live in right now, which I don't know if it's even worth getting into that into that stuff on the it on the pod today. It's certainly oh, like could, I, we'll have to see. <laughs> it could definitely go in a very root like direction with yeah, the, for sure. The, the different uh, fa- bar- backyard factions. Indeed, indeed. All right. So, is it cool if I call you Steve? Absolutely. I would All right. much prefer. So, cool. All right. So, Steve, um, we have a lot in common, but I do think that, especially for our audience members who might not know, um, you know, you know, of you or what you do uh, in the classroom, can you, to whatever extent you're comfortable, a uh, little bit of an origin story. Sure, sure. Well, there's both the professional origin story and then the gamer's origin story. So I'll give you a little bit of both. Um, When it comes to gaming as an origin story, our family didn't necessarily play a ton of board games growing up. But for me, the introduction to games around a table that might not have been boardly were um, playing role-playing games in the middle 80s with friends. So it would have been Advanced Dungeons & Dragons that, that got me hooked on the idea of fun around the table with play. Mm-hmm. And that would have lasted into high school when other things take over and all of a sudden games kind of went dormant, I guess. Um, they, they hibernated for a long period of time. I would play something when somebody bring out at the table or, you know, typical classic card games and such. But you get to be a parent again later on and looking for kids to do things to do with the kids. Um, we had a local game store that had game days on and evenings on Saturdays and bringing the kids there was great. But I found that I was more excited to go than they were after a period of time. (laughs) Um, And so you start to um, collect other people in your life uh, who have those same kinds of interests. Um, So I do think of this again, from the psychological end of things feels to me like if you were to merge the mechanic of game collection uh, of set collection with gameplay, what you're doing when you're playing games is you're set collecting new friends. Sure, you're set absolutely. collecting a group of people who have this role-playing game interest, and I'm going to fill that set. But I'm also going to have the the heavy Euro game set or the the play around the table where it's just you know beer and pretzels kind of stuff. So as those collections started to grow, I had lots of different groups of people that were ready-made to play those. You know, it's funny you say that. Um, that's one of the coolest things about gaming I've always found um, is that. You, you kind of almost collect groups and every group yeah. has its own like little sort of flavor. And then sometimes even, again, I don't know, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's almost like our backyard euphemism. It's like, do you bring, uh, uh, do you bring the, uh, the, the groups together, which is what we yes. say. So the, the, uh, the worlds collide thing from Seinfeld kind of stuff. <laughs> do you bring them together? And, and it's worth the risk because when you can do that, um, sometimes they may go back to their separate corners and that's perfectly fine. But other times you've now merged those sets. Um, and I got to tell you that, that I would have thought for the longest period of time that long distance play mm-hmm. have felt somehow lesser than would have felt somehow um, as a substitute for when you can't really get to the table. But frankly, some of the people who I am closest to in gaming and maybe closest to in friendships even are people that I've added to that collection of, of folks who are across the country chatting on a shared chat thread, playing games on BGA and Yukata asynchronously, but I will talk with them every day. Mm -hmm. And those don't feel like substitute friends or fake friends. They've grown into genuine deep friends. Mm -hmm. And it's it's weird to think that the greater the distance between you um, physically, 
could be the exact opposite in how it is emotionally or psychologically. Because with yeah. a little bit of you know protection in the screen, you can type things that you might not have a, as easy a time saying. And with a little bit more of that open up intimacy, you've all of a sudden got friends from everywhere. Yeah, We actually, uh, in the last two years, brought those together as a little mini-con. Travel from across the country, all those groups of people who met through Facebook chats and, and pod, podcast fandoms and such. And uh, we all met in the Pacific Northwest last summer for a little mini-con of eight people renting a house. No, that's uh, great. Doing it again this year, going down to visit a friend in Alabama, and now it's up to 13 of those folks coming together. Mm-hmm. So you'd be surprised. That set collection grows, and some of them are people from my face-to-face board group. That's awesome. Some of them are people that you just ran across doing similar things in the virtual space on BGG or with, you know, podcast guilds and stuff. Right. So what are you guys going to play? Funny how that works. Yeah. What are you guys going to play? What aren't we going to play? Uh, it's going to be, <laughs> uh, it, what we did last year was we made it so that everybody could take, take one thing that they knew they wanted to introduce their friends to. So everybody brings one that they know they want to get to the table and, and we got to deal with everybody's must plays. And then after that, it's what happens, you know, mm. what, what what comes along. The person who's kind of whoever is the most local host person brings as much of their collection as possible so we don't have to fly so much stuff in. Right. So this year, we're really relying on Eric in, in Alabama. Hello, Eric, uh, to bring a lot of what he's got to the table. Last year, when we were up in the Pacific Northwest, Evan and Verla and Topher brought a lot of their stuff from the north and the south, um, so, and including some some uh, prototypes that Evan's working on and friends were working on. So we got to play Wonderland's War before it really hit big um, and see some of the things that that they have in do- that new designers who are local have in development. It's just a great time to get together. And you had said this is going to be in the Pacific Northwest? We did the first year in the Pacific Northwest because we had a cluster of three or four people who were uh, three in Oregon and one in Washington. Mm-hmm. So it made sense to reduce the amount of travel, I guess, for the group um, and share the costs a little bit. Um, some of our friends in the South from Louisiana and Tennessee and, and other, other places didn't have the opportunity to get there. So we decided to go Southerly this year and, and, uh, they, they can drive to Alabama from their location. So they're going to be the ones providing most of the, most of the cardboard and dice and all that good stuff. All right. So here's the real question, right? Shoot. So in terms of community building, um, when are you going to reach out to the federal government, uh, to talk to them about the fact that games can kind of bring people together from entirely different regions of the United States? Funny how that works. Huh? I'm kind of serious, uh, to be honest. Like, I uh, believe in all I this I totally stuff. get exactly what you're saying. I, I think there is room for that to happen both globally and locally. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I got to go a little bit tip O'Neill here and say all politics is local to begin mm-hmm. with. Um, so maybe we don't have it happen on the federal level until I can you know, show proof of concept in the classroom or at the county. <laughs> uh, but I do completely agree with you that community is essential and when you have people sitting around the table, um, you are now a new we. Right. It is now a brand new us, where in the past it was lots of different, you know, thems. Um, and that comes out of my, my work in social and personality psychology, that idea that when you get people together around something common mm-hmm. that is fun, whether it's competitive or not, um, Barriers break down, and all of a sudden, a lot of that automatic categorization as different disappears. Yeah. So I'm, I'm right there with you, but I think it's it might need to happen somewhat grassroots up. I would right. love to have the G7 <laughs> uh, get together and 
play some kind of board game, hopefully not risk style, perhaps, <laughs> but something along those lines where you are actually confronting the other person as a genuine person across the table rather than a representative of some some unseen but labeled group. Yeah, you learn so much about, again, I, I uh, unfortunately, I know that I say certain things all the time on this podcast. So this is probably the fourth or fifth time I've um, I've said this. You learn a lot about somebody when they pick dice up. That is what I've always found, especially in the classroom. And I know we haven't talked about WCC yet, but like, you know, the second that a student picks up dice in a simulation in history class, it's like, ah, okay, I'm learning a little bit more about you, you know. Now, before we get into some of that stuff, um, just because I'm interested. um, So I know that you, it sounds like you role play. It sounds like you play board games. I mean, do you have favorites? Mm -hmm. Are there kind of go-tos for you or or certain genres that are go-tos? Sure, sure, absolutely. When it comes to role play... I still probably tend to lean Dungeons and Dragons uh, simply because, again, like many people who played in the past but hadn't played for a while, we came back to it in the pandemic. Um, and our game group that would normally be meeting face to face, playing lots of board games, decided to bring that back in and, and add that to the rotation. And over the over the summer, it certainly increased. We get busy during the year, but when we were at home and screens were the outlet. It, it made perfect sense to bring that back. It was a it was like a homecoming for me. Uh, right. It wasn't the same as being around the table necessarily, but you'd be surprised how much the you know roll twenty experience virtually replicates it without the actual dice rolling. It's electronically yeah. rolling your dice, so it's not as tactile and you don't feel it as much in person. But you have the people's faces in front of you if you're playing on Discord, and and, and it's great. It really yeah. did work for us. So role playing that's probably my lead. We have played some beginning step in Call of Cthulhu, and I would love to do the horror on the Orient Express. Long-term commitment. I'm going to try and see if we can get a couple people to do that Mm -hmm. uh, in the years ahead. Um, But that's my role-playing history. Right. Uh, For board games, I am probably close to an omni-gamer, but the super heaviest probably are out of my wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I probably am not. It was going to make maybe heresy, perhaps, for a, a... a history and wargaming podcast. Mm-hmm. The 18xx heavy spread out across the table war games, usually not my jam. Right. But every now and again, they're remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love bringing that to students for them to have that experience, even if it's not mine, which is why, you know, some of your folks come into WCC doing yeah. some of those um, demos for them are really yeah. wonderful. Oh, that's cool. Thank you for saying that. My jam is more likely to be. Um, gateway and fillers to get started you know i like to think about them as like um not less than games they're Mm -hmm. they're a game there you can have a game night full of that and it would be like um instead of going to the wedding and having the banquet if you had nothing but cocktail hour it's perfect (laughs) well look cocktail hour is the best (laughs) cocktail hour is the best part of the the reception anyway um or if you wanted to think of it differently I, i like to to call those little tapas games they're delicious they're small bites but then you refresh and come out with something else um, I could do a night full of those. Um, we usually in our board game group um, have one big game, at least, that gets played a night. And that's mostly going to be on the lines of strategic, thematic or not, Euros. Cool. Um, so our last game that we had, last last game that we had just a couple nights ago, one table was playing Root for the first, some of them for the first time. And our our table played Tikal, um, Cromer and Kiesling, uh, wonderful game mm-hmm. and that went for about two hours or so and that was that was the night yeah um, that's awesome um 
and then finished up with, you know, Crokinole for a couple of rounds and we were good to go. Yeah. So I, I spend a lot of time playing lightweight to mid to heavy games. Uh, and then the favorites would probably be a lot of Cromer and Kieslings. I'm really loving Heaven and Ale lately. Um, I, I am constantly replaying um, Castles of Burgundy. We just basically set it back up again on BGA and re- rematch, rematch, mm-hmm. rematch. I'm doing the same with Patchwork as a two-player game, the Uwe Rosenberg game. I love that. Um, so a lot of Felds, a lot of um, not-so-terribly thematic Euros. Right. Um, Concordia would probably be right up there, too. Um, vaguely historically themed, uh, but yeah. more likely to be just uh, you know a mechanical game rather than you're actually executing history. And how many of these games would you say you're playing online versus playing in person? The great majority online. Gotcha. The great majority. The beauty of technology, right? The beauty of technology, again. And again, that also probably means that that is a reflection of the fact that with me collecting, set collecting friends like that, a lot of them are from a distance. Yeah. Uh, that's how we, that's how that has been built. And that's really fertile ground for it. When someone wants a new game, we have the ability to, to say, hey, look what they just added on BGA or look what, what's an old favorite on Yukata. Um, watch this video. Who wants in? Uh, right. And then we'll either play one live on a Friday night or we'll all stumble our way through in, in asynchronous chat and play it that way. The great awesome. majority of them are happening virtually um, and asynchronous. Yeah. You know, it's interesting what I found about um, your remote games, your games that you're playing on Zoom uh, mm-hmm. versus in-person games. I don't necessarily know if I like one version better, but I will say there's elements of gaming in person versus gaming online that I like better, I guess, if that makes sense. So yeah, for it, does, example, it totally does. Yeah, so for example, we do play D&D. So even again, uh, again, Scott, if you're listening, I'm calling you out. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> in Scott and I's gaming group, you know, we've got, I don't know, depending on the day, I don't know, anywhere between six and eight people that over the last, I would say, I don't even know at this point, probably 10 years, um, you know, people will cycle in and out depending on what's going on in their personal lives, right? But um, we play a ton of World of Darkness games, which Mm. are just too heinous to talk about. I think it'll ruin my reputation if we talk about what has gone on in some of those games. But um, there's something really cool with political games like that. And I don't know if this happens with any of the games you play, but no, there's something really cool about playing on, we play on Zoom, right? Where you kind of have to listen better than you do in person, right? You could also, yes. you know, if two characters want to disappear for a second, you know, you can kind of put them in a breakout room. So there's li- right. so many things that are so cool about gaming online. And just like uh, you were talking, we kind of survived the pandemic by playing, you know, uh, Vampire the Masquerade, you know, twice a week, you know, which was unheard of for us. But all of a sudden, it just opened up such doors. And it was one of our yeah. coolest campaigns, actually, that we played. A bit too immersive, Completely probably. <laughs> Completely agreed on that. And again, for that, for us with D&D, yeah, you do have to kind of tune in and listen. But you are, with technology, potentially multitasking the channels that you're paying attention to. So yes. you may miss out on things that you would have normally had clear at the table. Yep. What was someone's intention? What was what was someone in, implying with a particular comment? But again, for us, when we came back to that during the pandemic, there was usually a half hour of chat while everyone got their beverage ready and, and got their, their stuff together. And there was also probably an hour of chat afterwards when we closed down. So it was social, game, social you had a little um lifeline sandwich there during the uh during the pandemic yeah um so yeah i totally get that yeah 
we did recently return to in-person. And again, some of the good qualities there sort of come out too, where it's like, you know, having, you know, breaking bread, so to speak, while you're playing, you know, all those right. little things that were missed. But it's kind of nice Absolutely. to have a that nice, healthy do- dose of both. Um, yeah, yeah. So you said that, um, your kids also game. So is it is it like a, is gaming a little bit familial? I guess you could say in your home, or is it more on your end? It's more on my end. Um, mm-hmm. It became clear relatively early on that they were enjoying some of the games more than others. Where I was acquiring a taste for lots of different things, and so for for me, for example, with my better two thirds at home, uh, she is a um, more traditional gamer card games we're talking you know things like rummy 500 and such so those kinds of games if there are card games that are easy to learn uh, in the llama style or you know something along those lines scout perhaps even um those might be fair game but truth of the matter is we have so much in common we don't have to have everything in common Mm -hmm. and it's okay for everybody to have different likes and dislikes um, so while we were playing early on with the kids, they were more like more likely to like the the RPGs. So they they enjoyed D and D and broke into their own groups with their friends, which made made me super happy. If we're not playing, but they're playing, great. That's another mm-hmm. tool for them to bring friends together. Um, so we did kind of share the RPGs, but then diverge with which groups we were going to play. Um, they otherwise, compared to with uh, respect to other board games, grew out of it pretty quickly, mm-hmm. where and left me with the interest in finding another group. Um, I like to tell this story that it was one time I came home with Mysterium, um, you know, the board game where you're uh, you're kind of, one of you is a ghost giving Dixit-style clues with cards about the kind of like Dixit clue in some way, like how did the murder happen? And one person is having to communicate with art, but with no speaking. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to, maybe as a teacher, over talk when the time comes to teaching things <laughs> and they want to just more get into it say we'll figure it out once we're playing and i'm thinking but no you can't you need to know the rules when i came home with mysterium and said there's going to be there's a rule there's a role in this game where one person can't talk and they all said well are you going to play that role because if you're going to play that role i'll play with you if you have to be quiet while we play okay great let's play that one so it's it's different strokes for different folks. Yeah, no, but it's hard to turn the teacher voice off, though. It's hard. It's really it, difficult. It is. And I think it's not just the teacher voice. It's that for me, I I know before I play a game, I want to know all of its gears. Yeah. And I don't need, I don't feel the need to learn the game through an experience. I'm, I could watch a video or read a rule book for pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that would be the I you know the the epitome of hell for most of my, the rest of my family. So they want right. to they want to get into it. Yeah, that just like, does, that just means we're not likely to be play partners in most of those games. Right. So it sounds like you like game mechanics. Not to get too nerdy here, but meaning you <laughs> you like to know how things work. Yes, I, I want to I want to unpack the game, not just through playing it, but beforehand. I, I you know academics like to study things. Yeah, no, for sure. I, you know, it's funny. I'm not, but hopefully I'm not projecting on you right now, but, um, you know, look, I've run thousands of games in my life, right? Like I I've run RPGs for people. I've run tabletop games for adults. I've run, you know, war games for students, you know, at school, it's hard to teach a game. I I really find it difficult, you know, like at this point, I think I've gotten good enough at it where I feel like I can explain what they need to know in 30 minutes 
Yeah. But then not tell them everything, you know? Right. And it's interesting. You really have to read the people at your table. I almost ask almost every time I play a game, do you want to know the background first or do you want to know how to play? You know? <laughs> right. Completely agreed. And just like different people have different gaming styles, um, different people have different teaching explaining styles as well. The, it, the ideal is when they match. Yeah. Um, or if a person... If they don't match, the person can change their style of teaching to match their their company. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally I totally agree yeah. with you. You're not projecting on that at all. <laughs> so teaching has come up a lot. So mm-hmm. I think is it time? It might be. Sure. Um, so I guess maybe we before we talk about kind of like the gaming element in the classroom, maybe mm-hmm. let's just talk about the classroom first. Like, so how did you get sure. into education? How did you get into academia? Great question. Well, you said right now I'm teaching at SUNY Westchester Community College. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know how many folks who are listening to this will be local, but SUNY is the State University of New York. Um, And I am a State University of New York product throughout my education. Undergraduate at New Paltz, master's at New Paltz, PhD at Albany, um, and then taught for many years at the College of New Rochelle. And when the College of New Rochelle ceased to be, uh, moved on to a three-year visiting position at SUNY Farmingdale before coming back to teach at SUNY WCC. So New York has been um, my my teaching stomping ground for a long period of time and my learning stomping ground for a long right. period of time. Um, how did I get into it? I, as an undergrad, thought I wanted to be in biology and, and still have a love for it. Um, but that... Um, Imagining myself in that field kind of stopped when we got to comparative vertebrate anatomy. And at the first day of lab, they put our um, everybody's individual dead cat on the table. Oh, you would be dissecting for the rest of the semester. Right. And I thought to myself, I found I find this fascinating and disgusting at the same time. Do I have enough fascinating to compensate for the disgusting to want to continue doing this? And while I still remain interested in, in obviously, brain and behavior, I was at the same time taking a couple of different psychology courses with fantastic professors. Um, uh, Call out to Phyllis Freeman, who was my one of my great mentors early on teaching the psychology of sensation and perception. So it was a lot of a lot of um, physiological psychology. I was getting my biology, but in brain and behavior rather than just dissecting the brain. Gotcha. Uh, and David Morse teaching a physiological psych class in my experimental psychology class. Um, and I was finding that I was more interested in that than what I was majoring in. And the beautiful thing about liberal arts education is you're exposed to a lot of different possible pathways. Yeah. So you have a little choose your own adventure game there and you are allowed to change your mind. And I did. Um, then thought I was going to be going on for psychology to be a um, clinician. And went on to get my master's in general psychology with a counseling concentration at New at New Paltz as well. But in the process of doing that, had a teaching assistantship, which was partially funding what I was doing. So I was working with Allison Nash and other people in the stats labs, teaching statistics while down the hill, I was working at the counseling center. And while the counseling center work was going fine, and I'm sure I would have been good at it eventually, I started to look more and more forward to being in the classroom talking about how the numbers worked and trying to get that across to students then working one-on-one with with clients so there was another you know point at which you choose page a or page b right and i went with page b instead of what i thought was going to be the choice all along 
So that led me to studying social and personality psychology at SUNY Albany and getting my PhD in that and going on to teach. Gotcha. Wow, that's cool. And by the way, um, this is always great when you don't completely know a person when you have them on. Uh, I lived in, I lived up by New Paltz for years. My wife went mm-hmm. there, so yeah, it's great such town. a wonderful place. Oh yeah, we we always had a blast there. So, yep. Um, uh, so how how long were you in New Paltz for? I guess four or I five was years. In New or Paltz longer, for uh, for my uh, undergraduate for three and a half years. Okay. Had some uh, some credits that came from APs, so I was finished gotcha. a little bit earlier. Um, did another master's there, um, which took about two plus years to complete with the um, the thesis and and working at the same time as yeah. studying. Um, and then uh, for the PhD, I was up in Albany. But then as as time got closer to working on the dissertation, there was less and less time on campus at Albany yeah. and more and more time in front of the computer writing and working on things. And the assistantships had dried up there. So I did a one-year visiting um, lecturer position at New Paltz. We gotcha. were living in Saugerties on the Hudson. Yeah, um, yeah, I was going north occasionally to Albany. My wife was going out toward Woodstock to teach in her elementary school job. And I would travel south one or two nights of the week to teach at New Paltz. Yeah, very so cool. We were kind of central in that Hudson Valley area. No, that's while. wonderful. It's a, like I said, it's such a, it's such a nice area. Um, it's definitely old home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. So, okay. Where do you bring gaming in? When does when does that start? Like in terms of you, um, you know, beginning your teaching career at the different places that you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Where does it where does it start? Well, there's where, and maybe before we even get to that, when. Yep, it's only been recently. Oh, um, okay, gotcha. Going back to the um, the war of the gaming origin story, I've really gotten more involved, more and more involved in the um, what you might think of as modern hobby board games in the last seven, eight, nine or so years. Um, so it's been learning new games and discovering that there's this brand new world of different things that you can do that are not just the typical roll and moves that everybody thinks about. So discovering that there can be a real rich tapestry of games geared toward everyone. It's not that you have to you have to fit yourself to the game. You can fit games to you mm-hmm. was, a, was a revelation. And as I was doing that more, it was it was more what I would do personally, privately for my own enjoyment. As I moved to different places, you would find that there are, again, we're back to set collection of friends here. You would find that there are a couple of different people in certain places that could be shared shared souls in some way. You know, see things the same way. And I had one or two people perhaps at College of New Rochelle who were who would play games every now and again, but not enough of a, um, not enough of what you would call a starting energy level to bring together a group of folks. We did right. not reach critical mass to really start the whole, you know, fission uh happening there. We right. were not getting nuclear power for games. Right. Well it takes investment, right? It does I take mean, investment. It really does. And and on another level, it also takes a sense that you're going to, I think, be there for a while to lay down roots. I had that certainly at CNR. I was there for like 19 or so years. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't the sense that as I knew these people more and shared more of what I liked doing, there were others who were saying, yes, I'd like to do that too. Going from there to Farmingdale for three years, uh, I, I had a couple of people who were potentially interested in that. But mine was only a visiting position. And without being able to really lay down roots... To be able to do work that was going to ha- to that you were going to see fruit in some way, uh, come to flower, 
was not not going to happen, unfortunately. And then also add COVID into the middle of that, and there was less likely to be person to person community happening there. I did work with some undergrads who were, you know, supervising some of their academic research that they were looking at with games, and I had one or two other people who were interested in them, but we never really had that longer term connection. Mm-hmm. Arrive at WCC last year, and um, and for a tenure track, long lasting position, one that I hope to be at for a while, mm-hmm. and immediately finding people down the hall or across the campus who say, oh, you need to know this. Just like Scott told you, yeah. I've got a guy I'd like you to talk with. People immediately say, there's a person over in testing who does games with his, and, and there's a gaming guild for students. Um, Scott's the, let's get you in touch with Scott. Uh, walk down the hall and talk with Julie. Julie does some real interesting things with um, with stuff in her anthropology class where they're role-playing. Mm-hmm. Um, Julie's husband in, in um, archaeology and anthropology does the same thing. People were all of a sudden manifesting. And at the same time now, uh, as you find other people who are interested in both the personal and the professional of games, now all of a sudden you're saying, we could we could start doing some pedagogy stuff, talking with our peers, presenting on our ideas about playful, gameful work in the classroom, working with students on a regular basis, even though you may only be with them for two years in a two-year institution. Make the community less of a commuter school by having there be a place where they they camp on Wednesdays to play games. Right. Um, so as you feel like you can lay down roots and you also feel that there's other people watering that same soil, I'm getting a little metaphorical here, mm-hmm. um, then it's it's you're okay to let some of your private self become your professional self too. And again, you can allow those worlds to overlap a little yep. bit. So it's only recently that I think I've really kind of started to not just take the that I want to do this, but find a pathway to be able to bring personal and professional together and be a um, a complete person in the classroom rather than being, uh, turn on my professor self here, turn on my game self here, and then turn it all off to come home and become my you know family self. It's right. become a lot more unified and, and holistic at that yeah. level. And that I think is really a question of finding your spot and finding your people. Right. I love that word holistic that you mm-hmm. just used. Yeah. Because I've always found that if you really want to be a memorable person in the classroom, you kind of have to show more than just your content, right? People have right. to know you if they're going to make a connection. And I know there's a fine line there though, right? Because there are some people that they go way overboard when it comes to that, but they need to know you. Yeah, I think you've really, yeah, mining this, you've really hit the core nugget of this. Um, we want them in the classroom and in our office hours and in the work that we do with students to open up and become more expansive versions of themselves. And we can't do that. You, you can't grow. To stick with that growing metaphor, that 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 seed can't grow unless it cracks its case. That has to open. You have right. to do that and help the students do that. And the best way to do it, frankly, as a social personality psychologist, is to model it. Mm-hmm. You have to show them that it's okay to be yourself yeah. and present some of your yourself in the classroom. There are boundaries. You have to be the professional. You have to be the adult. You have to... You have to share when appropriate and protect when not. Yeah. But I think people are overly guarded when it comes to that most often in the classroom. That um, an opening up space, an invitation for people to come and do some of that work needs an example in the front of the classroom to show here's how we can do this. And to step back and allow those students to bring that to the table then too. 
So you both provide an example and then give space to follow. Yeah. That's absolutely key for that as far as I'm concerned. And that again comes from that background in social personality psych. We, we, we did some of the, um, the gamer origin story, uh, but that's where my, I've gravitated in person in, in psychology toward the field of social personality psych. And I try to use a lot of those principles in the classroom. A surprising amount of gaming is who are you? Right. My personality. Right. And then how are we? That's the social part. Right. Well, you know, you're touching on something so important, which when I do, um, you know, seminars and talks and things, um, I touch on that point exactly, which is like, I think gaming, particularly role-playing, lets you practice in a really safe way to do all of these things. So, for example, Mm -hmm. I so distinctly remember the very first time that I substitute taught. I mean, this is a long time ago. I mean, I must have been... Man, I must have been 21 years old or 22. And I remember being a little bit nervous, but then saying to myself, I do this all the time. You're playing a part. Yes, you're playing yes. yourself. And then it just became, I don't know, I don't want to use the word easy because I think that would be a bit insulting to the profession, right? Mm-hmm. But it felt very comfortable for me. Right. And I it was the games that taught it. Yeah. And, and I don't, I, I agree with you that easy Comfortable probably is better than easy, certainly. But I think for me, it also comes down to it being more genuine and authentic. And if you feel like you have to play a role in the front of the classroom that is an authoritative, in-charge professor, then you are really not playing yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you can still be the authority and be genuinely you at the same time, the authenticity of that is, is really essential. Yeah, for sure. I, I totally get you with that. Yeah. Um, the the second thing when you're saying this here too, and I, I'm thinking about this as modeling an invitation for those students to to bring mm-hmm. themselves to the table rather than just sitting and filling up their heads with facts about psychology. Right. Um, that is that is deadly dull, boring for them, and equally so for me. It's not good. Um, but if you were to create that invitation and model it, I also think it's good for students to see that you changed your mind during your career as well. And to be able to tell them the same stuff that I just told you, I was sure I was going to be a, you know, an MD doctor. Well, I, I got doctor, but it's something else. I changed my mind in undergraduate. And it was perfectly fine. It's okay. You don't have to be married to your future today. Right. Um, it, it, there are choices and they can see that that happens and they can they can see that it's okay from someone else having done it already. It's also in that context of a liberal arts education that I'm really selling them how on how important psychology is to me, but it's not the only thing that's important to me. Um, I'll bring philosophy in at times to talk with people about this. And there's a whole there's a whole area in gaming that's a philosophy of gaming, trying to define what we mean by games. And to show them that there's not just one way of thinking about stuff. There's lots of angles you can come at. Um, I haven't turned off the other parts of my brain and my other interests just to be a psychologist. You can be you can be lots of different things, even if there's one that's your major professional role. So right. that's again examples in education that hopefully are are present for them. Yeah. I mean, there are so many different pathways we can go down just talking yep. about this particular point because I do think like when it comes to effective teaching, look, don't get me wrong. And I think a lot of my students will say this about me, like they know that I love content. But what I also know, you know, having done this, you know, having been teaching for probably close to 20 years now, it's like, 
I may really like talking about, I don't know, the Roman Republic and how it was founded, but <laughs> I also probably shouldn't get up there and wax philosophical for an hour about it, you know? And it always gets me when I hear True. people doing that. And I just want to like knock on the door and say, guess what? They're not listening to you, you know? So it's like finding that bridge between I really love students and I really love content and I really love skills and trying to figure out Right. ways to kind of bring all that together. And I do find that games are a great way to kind of do all of that. I, I a thousand percent agree with you. I think that when it comes to us in education being authorities in a field, mm. we don't, we shouldn't fall in love with the sound of our own voices. Right. We shouldn't presume that our fascination is the same as theirs. Um, but we should be in the business of at least showing it, showing people why it can be fascinating and why it fascinates us. So yeah, you're transmitting information, but I think you should be transmitting enthusiasm too. Yeah. And games really do that well, because if you get together in a group of people and get immersed in something, it's surprising how much of a good game is exactly what we as professors want in a good classroom. Right. Hundred um, percent. There's, there's, they're not the same thing, but they oftentimes have the same structure, goals, and um, things that lead to success. Yeah. yeah. Before we get into application and pedagogy, sure. um, I don't want to butcher the exact name of your specificity within psychology. So, sure. could you could you explain to our listeners and frankly to me, um, what is can you like basically what is your specific realm of of, of psychology? Absolutely. Um, like I said at New Paltz, I thought when I did shift to psych, I was going for clinical or counseling psych, which is what most people hear when they think psychologist. And therefore, at any dinner party or meeting somebody for the first time, you say you're a psychologist, then all of a sudden, there's a risk that either people will clam up because mm -hmm. you're analyzing everything that they say, or they unload with everything that they've wanted to say to someone. And <laughs> that must be exciting and fun. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit of both. You don't know how it's going to go. It's absolutely literally a roll of the dice when you say I'm a psychologist and it can go in many different directions. Do you intimidate, Steve, do you, Steve, do you intimidate people at parties? <laughs> I hope not. But I mean, I, I, at least leave it that way. I hope not. Um, because very quickly after going to that, I, I immediately say, but not that kind of psychologist. Not, not Let me right. tell you what I, I do. It's more about the classroom and about research and such and teaching right. the statistics about how we would you know, learn about the way people think, feel, and behave. Um, mine is not so much about practicing to help people be better at that, but understanding how our emotions and our thoughts and our actions are understandable, you know, right. when we we break it down kind of scientifically. Gotcha. Um, so my particular field is what would be referred to as SP or social personality psychology. I'm probably more on the personality side, which is what the research we're working on now is. But if you had to explain what this is, kind of already I've hinted at it. Personality is what you as a person have individually free, with within you, feels like it's within you, might have been taught to you, but it feels like it's yours now that I tend to think this way, feel this way, and behave this way across lots of different situations. So you can think about personality as kind of being the side that is the consistent you across time and places and different audiences. There is always a you that feels like you. That's the personality side. And that's maybe heads of the coin, but tails of the coin. You can't have one without the other. There's no, mm. there's no coin that has one side. Tails of it is how you're different with other people. And that's the oh, social okay. side. 
So if you wanted to think of it that way, social psychology is more about how the presence of others, either in person or even imagined, right? Like how other people might be thinking about me or other people might be evaluating me from a distance. How does that push and pull your behavior? Personality is consistency, but social is more about how you're changed by the social environment. Almost like code switching in a way. Like if I'm with- To some extent, yes. There right? may be, yeah, you could say in, in a social way, you may have selves rather than a self, right? right? You may have lots of different places where you exist and you're a, a slightly different person in all of them. But to you, it still feels like you. There's the personality that is, there's a through line that is consistent there. But social says, we might overestimate how constant we are. Put you in a different situation and you might be a very different person. Uh, and sure. so we study both of those sides of things. And you're doing um, research when it comes to this particular mm -hmm. particular field. Okay, gotcha. Right. And so that's, and again, coming back to the idea that you can be the same self professionally and personally, I found this this field where I can be thinking about personality and how it reflects in people's play and games. Ah, there is right. a growing field of research in what we might call positive psychology, um, not just studying how people are uh, broken in certain ways, but how people are strong and 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 um, happy and, yeah. and and enjoy their lives in many ways. And we can study how the emotions that they feel that happen in games grow them rather than just fix them. Is that a relatively new field or is that something that has been around for a while? It's been around for a few decades now, but it is the kind of thing that has been growing in gaining steam, let's say. Right. You go back to the 80s, perhaps, and 90s, and that was when the field was beginning to burgeon and say that let, rather than focus, focusing on all the things that can go wrong with people that we need to fix, aren't there things that people have that we could talk about as like their, their strengths rather right. than their weaknesses? Right. Um, talk about how when bad things happen, how some people tend to be more resilient. What is it about their personality that makes it easier for them to bounce back than for somebody else? So studying um, that idea, and you see things like grit grow out of this in the 90s and 2000s. Mm -hmm. um, so it's more a focus on on building and, and following good examples uh, and understanding them rather than only just using what we know about brain and behavior to say, oh, when it gets really bad, we need to intervene. Well, why not when it's going okay? Try mm -hmm. to use what we know to make it even better. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. It's very interesting stuff too. So do you find that what you specifically researched, all the topics you're talking about, do you find that they all come up in your individual classes at WCC or or some of them, uh, mm. your classes on different topics? Well, still fairly early in the in the game on that. As the uh, you know from being in academia, if you're the mm. relatively new person in the department, um, perhaps the the choice of the the classes that you teach from semester to semester may take some time before you're able to teach in your particular areas of expertise. Right. It's only going to be this coming year where I'm going to be teaching social in in cool. good detail, and personality may come for me in another year or two after that. But for the most part, I'm teaching intro right now. Okay. And it does come up in certain areas, in certain chapters when we're unpacking some of that. But intro is also more of a bit of a smorgasbord. Sure, um, sure, so sure. So you, you touch on it and then you move on to the next thing. Oh, I get it. It sounds a lot like what, I, what I've done in my career. I mean, it's like, you know... Most independent schools, because that's the world that I come from in terms mm -hmm. of not my, not my own education, but like what I teach or what, where I teach, I should say. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll have your kind of like almost like survey course, you know, your modern world history. But then mm -hmm. as as you sort of, you know, get your feet into the ground, you can develop your own electives. And that's really where sure. your own interests sure. and research can kind of kind of come out. Right. So, yeah, yeah. 
completely um, and each, each of those yeah. chapters in an in intro class is kind of like an audition for the student to say well if we had a class in this would i take it mm-hmm. um so if when we do the social psychology chapter hopefully students who have gone through that with me or with one of my my colleagues might be interested in taking my social psych class then where we unpack that in more detail for 16 or so weeks rather than just having a bite and how many uh, students are in each of your classes typically Typically, it tends to be somewhere in the mid to high teens, all mm-hmm. the way up to around thirty or so. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're pretty they're pretty full. Yeah. Um, but it's also likely to be the case for intro, where it's not just um, you're serving students in a particular major or field. That's one that might serve students' needs across the institution for checking off some, you know core or general education requirements as well. So you have a very diverse audience of people who are coming to that class and maybe potentially thinking that they're going to go down the the path of psychology. But for some people, you know, it might be a one and done. I'd like to leave them with a good taste of of psychology in their mouths rather than even if I don't convert them to to my psychological, you know, affiliation (laughs) that's so that's okay if they can bring it to use in their other classes that's fine too yeah yeah, for sure so let's talk pedagogy so how how are you integrating games um and i don't know if there's something like a specific game you want to talk about or really i mean it's your it's your time so really you can kind of talk about whatever you want right that's the best kept secret (laughs) exactly you know with with scott for example and uh julie again who's down the hall doing julie is doing role-playing some with anthropology so she'll have uh, she's created decks of cards with scenarios and they have to choose which methodology they might use um i tried using this past year in intro it's again very difficult with intro because you know there is a menu of stuff you're supposed to get through in the year if i linger too long on one thing because it is my interest i'm not doing a a service to the students so i was trying to think how could we do something in the classroom that would be useful um, and playful at the same time Mm-hmm. Um, there is a relatively new party game out called Poetry for Neanderthals. Okay. I don't know if you know this. I, I don't. I do okay. not. Absolutely silly game. And again, since I have some friends and colleagues who are in anthropology, they say it's not really about the Neanderthals. It's then they get it wrong. But the idea is the players of the game have to speak like they are imagining themselves to be cave people. And you're only allowed, therefore, to use one-syllable words. And you have to communicate to somebody else who's on your team. You draw a card, and there's a word that you have to essentially act out. But the moment you use a two-syllable word, someone who has blown up the inflatable club will bop you on the head, and you lose a point. I thought this is just goofy and foolish. Uh, the, the mechanisms aren't anything you know hard to teach. Mm-hmm. But we could think about this as a way of how do you get a message across to people using the bare minimum of words, right? And again, also think back to my my story with the family telling me, oh, we play Mysterium and you have to talk less. That's great. (laughs) But we could do a review session where if they all create their list of vocabulary words before the test, we could maybe do a little bit of a game where they had their vocabulary words in front of them and had to communicate either with each other or hear me give a description perhaps in the front of the classroom and have people ring in if we wanted to make it a little bit more student interactive, like make, gamify it that way, take a psychological concept that they should know what it means by now and try to get it essentially across with one syllable words. Uh, I can give you an example. Um, sure. There's a, there's a concept in uh, biological psychology called contralateral control. 
Well, big vocabulary term that just means essentially the right side of your brain controls the movement and sensation from the left side of your body. Mm. Contra, across, lateral, um, opposite, but side right. to side, opposite. If I tried to get that across as a um, Neanderthal, I might say left brain make right body. If I said body, oh, no, wrong. Right. Two syllable word, student and gets get to bot me over the head. <laughs> right. But if I say left brain make right hand move, they might be able to say, oh, okay, remember this. This is uh, talking about the op. So trying to get across the idea rather than using all of the big jargon, can you boil it down to an essential or a review game? Right. I know some folks have done this as kind of like, you know, board, you know, board game or um, game show review kinds of things. But maybe this is a little bit more playful rather than being on Jeopardy. Right, uh, right, right. Because then it also makes it so that they can laugh at me in the right. middle of it all, rather than being the person at the front of the answer, uh, front of the room, like, um, you know, Alex Trebek would have been saying, mm-hmm. no, 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 I'm sorry, we were looking for blank. And then you feel about that big because yeah, you didn't sure. the answer. This is a little bit more playful playful way to be right and wrong and they can make it teams too if i'm giving the clues they can say they can talk it out and say oh it was that one when you had to do this and it's surprisingly hard unless you prepare in advance to take all of these concepts and boil them down to single syllable words right but if you're doing that i hope that makes you also a better teacher because you're rather than saying follow me into this hard field you could say i'm going to come back with you who's getting into it to begin with and leave you breadcrumbs along the way. I'll join right. you where it's easier, and and we can build up to the vo- build up the vocabulary. But the concepts, it, they need to be something that you can explain cleanly. Sure. And that's that's an interesting exercise for both the professor and the students to have to try and get the the gist of it across. Simply. Right. And what what was the reaction like from well, the students? <laughs> it was the first year of trying to do that, and. Um, some of them were brave enough to step up in front of the room and do it. And that was a hard one. I tried to model it first and show again how you, you, you're going to feel foolish doing it. And it's okay. Um, but I had to go. I, I think I need to go back to the well and iterate on that one a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so I'm going to try that again this, this coming year to see if I could perhaps maybe make it more structured. People don't mm-hmm. love the, the thing that was difficult was the, th- the total think on your feet method. Sure. Right. And that could put you as feeling really on the spot. And all of a sudden, if you're in front of the class silently looking at a card and you have nothing, it could intensify your feelings of not feeling, you know, prepared. Yeah, no, totally, totally, totally. So yeah. back to the drawing board for that one. I don't, I, I'm not giving up on it, but it's what we call, it's what we call in our game group, pancake game. Right. Um, you know how if you're ever making pancakes, the first one is not great. Yeah, the never pan's is. Not up, the pan's not up to heat yet. You know, you either as the chef say, oh, I'll eat that one. Don't worry about it. Or you feed it to the dog. The, every first game is a pancake game. You toss that one away and after a while, the, ne- the next yeah. one gets, gets you right. You know, I wonder what would happen if if the kids did it in small groups first, you know, yes. like something along those lines. That That's yes. what kind of jumps out immediately to me because it kind of takes a little bit of the bite off where they can, right. you know, if they don't want to get up in front of the room, they don't mm-hmm. have to, but they're still doing it with their small team, and there's only four people watching or something. You and know? if at the at the point later on in the semester they have greater chemistry with some of their peers, yep. then this is both a way of building the chemistry, but also maximizing on it. Absolutely, so I think that might be that you you've almost read my mind as to what I want to do. I want to make yeah. the first since they might be taking three or four exams over the course of the semester. Maybe the first one is me showing the example, and maybe the second one becomes more they break into smaller groups for that. Yeah. 
It also hopefully incentivizes them to do a little bit of work in advance to create the list of words, uh, go through um, their readings, yeah, go through their notes, and f- identify the important vocabulary words. It's surprising how, t- how many times when you're teaching um, the idea that this is a, uh, this is a central idea. It, cu- it jumps out for me as a central idea, but it might not for the students yet. Yeah, All of those words that are in bold have been bolded for a reason, that, yeah. that people think it's important enough to be a vocabulary term that you might want to get conversant with. So if, if that can be something that incentivizes them to study a little bit more in advance, to collect, to prepare for their game, rather than to prepare for their test, yeah. I think they're more likely to prepare for the game than they are for the oh, test. Oh, 100%. And it's, and it's sneaky study, if you yeah. want to think of it that way. You know, it's funny. You reminded me of something. Uh I find exactly what you're talking about kind of happens like where if if you gamify something, students immediately start to work very differently. I'm not going to say harder, but mm-hmm. it's just so it after having done this for so long, it always surprises me, you know, like where, for example, right. I did this activity it was completely a throwaway activity in a lot of ways where um, right before one of our breaks at school, um, I had an extra day, like where the students had already been assessed on the material, right? And of course, you know, they all went through the the hurdles of getting ready for their assessment and stuff like that. So the day that I had kind of extra, so to speak, I created this little activity where we were learning about imperialism, right? And there's all these different versions of imperialism. And I told the kids, well, what if I were to tell you that Atlantis was found somewhere in the Atlantic and the Greeks were right, you know, and there's actually this island and all of the European powers and uh, people in the United States, they all kind of have interest in this place. Um, And I kind of said to them, if you were going to try to take this island over based on, and this was the really fun part, I had like a hundred clues that I randomly sort of put together about the island and kind of cut them up and some groups got some of the clues and some groups got others. So they don't have perfect information, but based on the information you had, what form of imperialism, if any, uh, would be would be best used? And what I noticed was all of a sudden kids who didn't talk to each other started going over to the other groups to find the clues they didn't have. Yes. All of a sudden the books are out. All of a sudden, the readings matter more because what they want to be able to do is use the jargon that they learned. Because, of course, I said to them, yeah, that test you took yesterday, I will give you an extra percentage point, mm-hmm. meaningless percentage point, if um, your team wins this competition. My point is, and I know see, I'm rambling now, right? Um, my no, point not at is, all. It, 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 it's just a very motivating thing, even for kids who don't really like games all that much. You know, true. So you're describing something that actually comes up from old social psychological research back in the 60s and 70s by, um, I think it was by Aronson, what he called the jigsaw classroom. Everybody gets a piece of the puzzle, but you have to build the puzzle together. You, as the professor, are, you know, think about it as a puzzle. You, You have a hard time putting it together unless you see the picture on the box, right? That tells you what you're trying to build. But if you know that we've got the pieces of the puzzle that have to do with economy, Someone else has the pieces of the puzzle that have to do with society and culture. Someone else has the pieces of the puzzle that have to do with religion or governance. Then you put all that together in a game. And all of a sudden, they are, it feels like they're being taught history. But they're certainly learning history. Right. If you want to think of it that way. I totally agree with you on that. And that's my my friend, Adam, who I, again, (laughs) Scott told you he had somebody he wanted you to talk with. I've got Adam who I want you to talk with too. Right. Is doing the same thing with role playing in high school special ed history classes. Right. Where they create uh, students at the beginning of the year create an avatar for themselves. 
And that avatar is going to be their family throughout history. Oh, that's so cool. As, and so as they go through from like, you know, Stone Age, Neolithic times to perhaps all the way, I think he may go up to Civil War in mm-hmm. America. Right. They will have a new member of this family who is in that area of the world experiencing those elements. And they have to necess- they don't necessarily play as a full role-playing game, but simply the act of imagining yourself in it right. is, is somewhat immersive. Yeah, um, and they can unlock as as times go on. They unlock new technologies. Right. They unlock new religions. They un- so it, you can think of it as um, history, almost as being a leveling up of their character in yeah. different times. No, it makes complete sense, and it sounds and it's fun, immersive. right? It's yes. fun, yes. right? Yes. Why why does education have to be sometimes? I guess to certain people, just so. I don't know. I'm trying to think of not draconian. That's probably an unfair term, but just like sort of sitting there and being the empty vessel waited to be sort of quote unquote filled. You know, there is an element of this that again, come bring it back to social psychology and personality psychology. Again, there's an element of our efforts to do things, our, our work in some ways that if we feel like we're doing it for our own choice, then it is able to be enjoyed. But the moment it becomes work, mm-hmm. the moment it becomes a job, the moment you're either doing it for a paycheck or a grade, we enjoy it less to yeah. some extent. Um, so we don't want to be in the business of extinguishing that intrinsic motivation. Right. And if they can still feel like they want to do it, but not just because of a grade, not just because of earning something, uh, the idea of putting a gold star or a grade or a paycheck on something sometimes will undermine interest yeah. rather than enhance it. Yeah. Um, so we want to make them do well. We want to help them do well, but we don't want to take away their choice for one and their own personal motivations for two. Right. So we can give them other ways to be engaged rather than to please me or get a grade. Why aren't we? There, it's a false dichotomy to think that there's a difference, that there has to be a difference between work in the classroom and fun in the classroom. Right. Because I think professors will sometimes say, oh, they're just they're just having fun. Or this class is nothing but work. And students will get the message. They'll know who will be the people that they want to take classes with, that they learned things with, but they also weren't talked at right. for an hour and 15 minutes at a time. Right, right, right. Now, totally. Absolutely. And I guess, like, to put this into the bigger context of things, I mean, it does sound like, at least from a gamification perspective but also mm-hmm. just uh, almost um just it sounds like institutionally wcc based on all the names that you've mentioned it yep. sounds really cutting edge in so many different ways and i know we talked about this earlier which i mean we don't have necessarily have to go down this rabbit hole too deep but mm-hmm. you know sometimes when people hear two-year school or community college they often um I'll, I'll phrase it this way in a very unsophisticated way it's almost you sort of look down your nose at that institution which is a real shame you know because again like I'll use the phrase cutting edge. I mean, that's what your institution sounds like based on everything you've talked about so far today. Well, that sounds, that's, first of all, thank you. That's kind. We're, we're starting to do this. And I think that's another thing that you want to, to, if you want to remain cutting edge, then it relies on the professional folks there being open to new things. Yeah. Um, if you teach the same way you taught 20 years ago, you are not cutting edge. Right. You are a you are a dull blade rather than cutting edge, if you want to think of it that way. It sure. may be it may still be good, but don't you want it to be better? Yeah. Um what we're trying to do with some of that is I think introduce 
other ways of thinking about it and trying to find places in what we think are important curriculum uh, for an opportunity to change motivation and make, make it more engaging. Um, let me cycle back because I don't want to ignore what you just said. I, no, I no, do, no, it's fine. I do, I do think that that concept of two-year versus four-year does have an element of some people looking at it as lesser than or generic versus name brand education. Um, but frankly, if anybody looks at a two-year institution as less than, I will only agree in one capacity. Like I told you beforehand, you are going to be spending less than your peers to get right. that for that preliminary education. Um, so it is very cost effective and geared toward people who might have other real world restrictions in what they can do or where they can go with their time and attention. Right. Right. But that does not have to mean that your experience at that institution is cut rate. You're going to be paying less, but you'll be getting much, much more for the money that you do spend. Right. Um, when we think about it in terms of trying to either gamify or make something have greater utility for students, many schools, two-year and four-year schools, will have for their first semester a kind of a first-year seminar course, which is taking students who may be either away from home for the first time or approaching college-level work for the first time. Um, there's a lot of new. There's a lot of brand new and unknown at this point, even including how to interact with your peers and professors, or where are the resources on campus? Many, many schools have instituted what they would call a first-year seminar, which is designed to get students perhaps reading academic materials in greater depth for the first time, primary resources, and maybe being you know, an introduction to academic work, but also helping them know the institutional supports available, right? That class is a course that students may have to take. And the moment you have a course that anything that somebody tells you you have to do, you don't want to do. Right, right. Again, we're back to the idea of freedom of choice or what's my motivation for this. Students wouldn't choose to sign up for a class like this, but they're told that they have to. Right off the bat, you're pushing a boulder up the hill. Right off the bat, it is the motivation for it is, is outside of you rather than inside of you. Right. How can we take something like that and maybe make it more fun and gamified? And Scott, Julie, and I are kicking around the idea of treating this. It's going to sound a little strange to think of college this way. But think about your first year um, seminar experience as learning how to graduate. At the very beginning of things, you're developing skills that will help you in your next semester, which will help you in your next semester, which bring you closer and closer to graduation. What have we thought about it as, in, as graduation as an escape room? Right. Each new clue that you learn helps you get closer to the final solution, which is maybe not freeing you from going to WCC. We don't want to treat them like they have to run away at the end of it. But think of it as liberating rather than escaping in some right. ways. What if we taught that in such a way that each new thing was at the end of the semester, you thought about how you could put it together and see that these things really, what we learned, were sequential and got me to the ability to, to escape this class and move on to the next one better prepared. Right. So we're kicking around that as a concept for how we could maybe gamify things. Maybe yeah, that an assessment fun. that is, uh, you know, taking the stuff that might be dry and stuff that they have to know, but maybe making it so that it's a little bit more of a fun experience along the way um, yeah. that doesn't rob them of choice. So it gives them choice. Who teaches those courses? It is often across the curriculum, right? Mm -hmm. So the folks who are teaching those may be from many different backgrounds. Right. They, they may incorporate at, at the places where I've been in the past that they, they might be taught by a psychologist or a, a biologist or an English professor. 
And maybe those professors will bring some of their readings from their field into it. Very introductory readings, right? Because mm-hmm. again, you're not you're not recruiting for your field yet, if you want to think right, about that. Right, right. But giving them the idea of how they could approach those. So it's not geared to a particular major or a, uh, a particular department. But at some level, it should be taught by people who want to be doing this. So again, if you take it and make it so that the students don't feel like they have to be there, but they want to be there. And also make it so that the faculty don't feel like, well, I'm one class short. I guess I'll teach the first year seminar. <laughs> yeah. that, that's not a good recipe for the faculty to be there either, because then, then we've just traded in one have to for another have to. Right. What if we made this more of a community thing where people could feel like they wanted to be there? And we yeah, could do that sure. with better pedagogy. We yeah, could do no, that with absolutely. More playful pedagogy. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds too like, I mean, not to add more work to your plate, but it, it, I mean, it would be kind of interesting if the three of you, um, you know, developed some curriculum, maybe not like, obviously, like an entire semester worth forcing a professor who might not feel comfortable with some of that material to teach it. But if you te- if you you have a couple of go-to games that you can design that anybody could do, that would be really, really interesting. Completely. You know? I'm, I'm completely in agreement with you there. And again, think about this. You asked me early on, what are the kinds of games I like? Well, there's different strokes for different folks. There's different games for different people. And you might have your fellow peers, your 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 faculty members who are intrigued by the idea of games, but maybe haven't played games for a long time in their lives. Well, what would be, just like we might talk about games as being gateway or filler games, mm-hmm. what's the gateway and filler playful pedagogy? Maybe maybe the gateway entrance is more along the lines of that um, review for Neanderthals kind of thing. But for someone who's a little bit more comfortable in the field of hobby games and is looking for something deeper, perhaps more of a semester-long arc, or something that they could incorporate into their class that might be that role-playing game across the across um, many different eras. Maybe you just need to have, just like we would think for students, meet them where they are, meet our peers where they are, and Absolutely. offer them a gateway game or a little midweight game, or for those who are ready to jump into the deep end, give them the swimmies that'll help them, you know, you know, not sink. Right. Doing sure. That. Sure. So. As I always say to guests, I mean, I feel like this is kind of a tip of the iceberg conversation in a lot of ways. I I feel like, you know, at some point when you come back on, which hopefully you will, we can kind of pick a few of these topics and really kind of dive deep. But just in terms of um, a little bit of finality to our conversation today, Mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds like you've given me a pretty good sense of some of the things that you're working on. Um, what else are you working on when it comes to games? Because I know that you do some work outside of like, you know, the uh, WCC when it comes to games. Correct me if I'm wrong, not a podcast exactly, right? Yes. Yes. Well, then uh, geez, you're giving me a lot of different pathways to choose. Yeah, no, I know. I, I have a habit of doing that. Right. <laughs> I love it. Because again, you're letting, you know, the, the player gets free choice. That's kind of yes, what we yes. like in games. You have to play by the rules, but you want to have freedom of choice. Yeah, no one's um, listening for me, Steve. I'm the, I'm the least <laughs> interesting person involved in this uh, pod. It's you that people want to hear about, so. Well, let me tell you a couple of things. For, okay. for me, uh, I have gotten a little bit more into content creation. That happened, again, through um, being a follower of podcasts the the dearly beloved and um, sadly departed Dukes of Dice podcast, which my friend Alex and Sean ran from um, 
New Mexico and St. Louis apart, they had on Board Game Geek a guild where people would talk about the things in advance and they would um, you know, outsource the naming of their podcast. They would say what the, you know, what that week was going to cover and then put it out for people to put out creative ideas for what they would name the podcast. I got into that. I love wordplay. So it became a contest. And then all of a sudden you're a character in their podcast because you've named an episode. Right. You get invested. It's you fun. get nicknames. You get the, the, you, you were you were part of something. And in the process of doing that, I started interacting on the Guild with somebody who's become a near and dear friend to me, BJ, mm-hmm. um, who is the host of his own show, Board Game Gumbo, okay. which was originally on Facebook Live, but is now being uh, broadcast on Twitch and YouTube Live. And so I started following his podcast or, or live streams, too, and chiming in there. And as I was involved with the chat, the live chat there, um, typed live chat, he started Again, commenting more on the things that I was saying and then using them to ask the the guests questions. All of a sudden, we reach out to each other and we're talking outside of that context. So that grows into becoming kind of like a co-producer on his show. And then, you know, hey, you know, instead of just working behind the scenes, you want to be on the screen too? Because it would be nice to not have me talking all the time. Mm-hmm. And then we've, again, collected new friends. Um, so now it's BJ and me and Verla and our friend and game designer, Jay Bell, um, as a rotating cast of folks doing Board Game Gumbo Live, interviewing people who are game designers, other content creators, um, publishers in the field, and then writing our own games to play with them. It's a board game show, so I'll write a, a game at the end that we play that is a, usually a wordplay game of some sort that we'll, mm-hmm. we'll do with the guests. And they'll they'll fight against the people com- in live chat to see that's, if you can come up with the answers fast. That's exciting. Yeah, it's very fun. It's, it's fun. And it's another, again, per, semi-professional outlet. I'm not getting paid for it, but it certainly is. If I'm doing research on games and I'm doing gaming in the classroom, well, I'm, I'm becoming a more intact person at that yeah. point, rather than saying, this is a part of me that can't come to the classroom. We've had our students who went to PAX Unplugged this past year and got get... Um, some review copies of games for reviews, and then they wrote up their reviews to be on the Board Game Gumbo blog. So students who might be interested in gaming, getting interaction experience with publishers and board game designers and potentially interacting with them in ways that could get them into the field. That feeds students, ultimately. We do that. So that's been kind of the stuff that I've done in addition with uh, on my own. I would be doing that whether or not I was in um, higher ed. But the thing that I am doing now this summer in high, that's related to higher ed is through the Bridges to the Baccalaureate program, mm-hmm. working with students who have applied from other two-year schools to do a summer residency at SUNY Purchase College. Again, keeping it all in the SUNY system, near mm-hmm. and dear to my heart. Um, they come for seven or eight weeks and live on campus working with a faculty mentor, uh, working with a faculty mentor who comes in nine to five, Monday to Friday, to help them design and carry out and be able to present research, empirical research on their topic. Most of it tends to be chemical, biological, environmental science, but they usually try to have one psychology person per semester. And this semester, their psychologist was going to be doing their own work abroad. Opportunity. You can somebody yeah. knocks on the door and says, hey, sure. I think I'm going to have a guy for you. Um, so we're doing research on personality, uh, predicting people's experiences, learning a board game. Right, that's awesome. So you got your you were you were at the tavern and you got your adventure <laughs> from exactly, the NPC. Exactly, exactly. No, that's great. And I and I we've we've now got a a seven or eight week little mini campaign, um, and we know there's going to be a story arc to it, but that will end with data that they present to their peers at the at the end of the su- the summer semester. 
Right. But there's also an opportunity to present that at a convention for um, historically underrepresented or minoritized students doing research in science. Um, so our students can go with this someplace. Yeah, they that's can see great. this as, a, uh, as an option for their career in science and research about something that interests them. Yeah. Well, you know, as I always say, everybody should be at the table, right? Like, yes, you know, absolutely. so every, everybody should get their chance to do something great. So we don't always do program, that well, but we should. No, I know. Better. And again, like that, that, that could be a whole nother rabbit hole. I mean, I brought up politics earlier. I don't really talk about politics a ton on this pod, but yeah, like, absolutely. Um, Steve, this was such a great conversation. I don't think I've laughed as much on any pod than uh, today. That was oh, that's really great a to lot hear. of fun. I enjoyed, yeah. it. I enjoyed it a lot too, Jared. And I, I think this is episode at least one of two, perhaps. Yeah, no, you more. should definitely come back on. Now, the other thing, again, Scott, this is the third time I'm mentioning your name. We we should get Scott to come on. Um, you know, we'll uh, we'll we'll pick at him a little bit and prod a little bit. Maybe you could use your uh, powers of negotiation. Um, sure. To, Using uh, social to psychology to, for good yes. and not ill. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Persuasion, absolutely. So final point. So Steve, if somebody wanted to um, either, for whatever reason, whether it would be like contacting you or listening to some of the content that you put out there about games, like how would somebody do that? What would be the easiest way? Super simple. Google board game gumbo anywhere. Board game gumbo, on okay. Board game gumbo on Twitch, on Facebook, on uh, BJ runs the Twitter account. Um, you'll see there's a YouTube channel that also takes a lot of our pre-recorded live things and, and saves them and either puts them out as complete episodes or chops them up for which if we talk about a particular game, maybe an eight minute section of it could be used by publishers as uh, a video that they post on BGG, Board Game Geek, or gotcha. in their promotional materials. So if you look for Board Game Gumbo anywhere, any search engine should get you there. And he's also now putting an audio version of it out. So while we are live on Twitch with audio and video and doing um, live games, alternating mm -hmm. Tuesdays, not some one Tuesday as a guest, the next Tuesday is him sitting in his home studio playing games live with other people. Cool. That's uh, With fun. chat, watching it and interacting. So All you right. can certainly find us there on usually Tuesdays. Best way to get there would be to go to Twitch and subscribe, probably. All right. If they wanted to reach out to me personally on the academic side of things, or even the personal side of things, they could reach me at w my WCC address. The best way to, to do it, rather than having to spell the name correctly, is SO22 at SUNYWCC.edu. SO22 at SUNYWCC.edu. All right. Steve, this is a lot of fun. Thank you I so agree. much for coming Let's on. Do more. All right, I'll, we definitely are absolutely. All right, and as so, BJ yeah, would want ahead. me to say, uh, his his total send off is coming from uh, Acadiana in Louisiana. The 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 end is les bons temps brûlés. So let the good times roll, everybody. <laughs> awesome. All right, everybody, have a wonderful day. See ya. Thank you so much for listening to today's twenty sided gamified podcast. I hope you got as much out of the conversation as I did. If you're interested in learning more about the organizations I work with, please visit www.nextgengaming.org and www.nasaga.org. My Instagram handle is HMGS underscore NextGen underscore Inc. Until next time, be well, get some gaming in, and roll some 20s. Thank you so much.